Welcome to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas, clinical psychologist, couples therapist, and founder of The Thomas Connection. I help high-striving busy people let go of the pressure of perfection to create more joy, connection, and compassion in their lives. On this podcast, we promote balance of a burnout through giving you the permission to pause, the curiosity to find your purpose, and the courage to play. Welcome back to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas. Today's a special episode because I really wanted to use this platform to highlight the importance of supporting fathers' mental health. For those of you who've been listening for the past year, you know that I'm very passionate about mothers' mental health, that I'm on the editorial board of Mothers Magazine, that I'm part of the Nourish app and providing pro bono content to the app, supporting the well-being of mothers. But what about dads? As someone who's married to a man, who is the father of my children, I think it's really, really important that we highlight that dads often get missed in the system. Today's guest will highlight to you how important it would be to screen for mental health in fathers and how his journey could have been different had those signs of mental health problems been spotted earlier, how signs of trauma after the birth of his daughter actually weren't spotted and he wasn't supported. There's a bit of a trigger warning here because there will be a little bit of his birth story mentioned, but I hope that you, as a dear listener, will be able to tolerate hearing about the pain because it also leads to his passion and his purpose. Elliot Ray has done a lot of work for father's mental health. He's very passionate about this and this shines through in our interview today. So let's dive in and introduce our guest. Elliot Ray is the founder of Music Football Fatherhood, the parenting platform for men which is all about open conversations around fatherhood. It's been described as the dad's version of Mumsnet by the BBC. It provides a space for dads to share the ups and downs of parenting and promote a positive representation of diverse fatherhood. This is done through the popular blog, which has hundreds of articles written by dads, the hashtag Daddy Debates podcast, where they have in-depth chats about different fatherhood-related topics, and they have community events, including monthly peer sessions for new dads called The Lodge. Elliot founded Music Football Fatherhood after he suffered from PTSD after the traumatic birth of his daughter. He's passionate about writing about fatherhood, masculinity, mental health, equal parenting and gender equality. Elliot has held senior DNI leadership roles, most recently as head of DNI delivery at HM Treasury, and the United Nations recognised Elliot's work. So he's now the proud recipient of the UN Women UK He for She Changemaker of the Year Award. Welcome to the podcast, Elliot. I'm really pleased to have you here. Thank you, Michaela. Thanks for having me. I hope that we're going to have quite an in-depth conversation today about fatherhood and, and mental health affecting dads. And that's obviously why you're here talking about being a dad. And you've had a really difficult, painful journey into fatherhood. So I wonder if you can start there by telling the listeners a little bit about your journey into fatherhood. Yeah, so my journey was, uh, and, uh, well, I say interesting. <laughs> I guess interesting now. But it started off pretty smooth, to be honest, when we when we were trying um to conceive that was all pretty smooth sailing and happened really quickly and my wife's pregnancy um as pregnancies go it was fairly smooth um you know no kind of out of the ordinary symptoms or anything like that but quite late on I think it was around eight months in 
we received a a note, a letter, a pamphlet, I should say, through the post, which uh, notified us that my wife was carrying something called Group B strep, which is quite a common infection. Normally, it's not harmful to the baby, but um, when it's detected, the mothers are given antibiotics during birth to try to prevent the infection being transmitted to the baby. So that was quite worrying. Um, we didn't know anything about Group B strep at the time. I know a lot about it now, <laughs> but at the time, you know, it wasn't something, it still isn't something that is really spoken about in, term, in a pregnancy journey at all. So we did a lot of research and you know, met our midwives and stuff like that. And it was a worrying week, but we were, we were at ease um, by the time the labour came. Dur- yeah, so dur- during the labour, it was, you know, a difficult labour a long labour with lots and ups and downs in terms of heart rate scares and blood pressure scares and stuff like that. And after a couple of instances of, of you know, doctors rushing into the room and wanting to see my, my wife and, and, and check the baby and stuff like that, um, my daughter was eventually born through uh, Von Chus after just over 24 hours. And yeah, I think that's when it all started seriously, really, when she was, you know, brought out and she was very grey, very pale, wasn't breathing. And at the same time, my wife was losing a lot of blood. So at that moment, there were lots of, I can't can't remember the number, but there were lots of doctors and nurses in the room, kind of a group working on my wife, a group working on the baby and resuscitating my baby, trying to, trying to um, stop the, the blood from, from my wife and so, that. and so yeah really quite worrying time to be honest we spent a period in intensive care we were there for all in all we were there for 10 days in intensive care because even though we had the antibiotics during birth the uh, infection was still transmitted to my daughter so she had to have antibiotics as well and with group B strep it can be quite serious and you know, one in 10 babies will die another one in 10 will have a serious lifelong disability through contracting meningitis so really worrying time of going up and down. And I luckily, I got to move into the hospital. So that first night, it was kind of you know, going home alone. Um, and the second night, going home alone, having to leave my wife and baby in the hospital. But by the third day, I think just being nice to people and <laughs> being friendly, um, they took to us and they offered us a room, which was a lifesaver, to be honest. So I, I was able to stay in the hotel. So not in the hotel, stay in the hospital. <laughs> I wish it was a hotel. <laughs> stay in the hospital and um and be there and so for me it was like a real crash course in parenting because up until that point I'd never changed a nappy before but it was literally the three of us living in this quite small room having kind of three hour cycles of going to have to go to intensive care to get antibiotics and doctors coming in to check my wife's um, vitals and give her her medication as well so that lasted for a couple of weeks and by the end we finally after kind of going up and down we finally got the good news that the um, antibiotics were working and the same day it just so happened the same day my daughter developed this really you know big bump on the back of her head out of nowhere and for me that's when the doctors and nurses were really really concerned they obviously were concerned about brain tumors and whatnot adverse effects from the antibiotics so uh, we were booked in for an emergency MRI scan the next day and you know that that night was really the toughest I think out of all of the, the two weeks that night was easily the toughest part of probably part of our whole lives to be honest um, and we just cried and prayed for hours and then we went in the morning to the MRI scan. Um, and thank God, you know, I still remember the nurse running in, giving us all a hug. You know, we were, we were 
family by that point we lived with them we we got to know the doctors and nurses so well so she came in and gave us a massive hug and told us not to worry and you know it was bone instruction we can finally go home so it was a yeah pretty traumatic couple of weeks in hospital completely unprepared for it all um i'd obviously you know used most of my paternity leave in the hospital so for me it was kind of going back to work straight away had a couple of days off at home but going back to work straight away and over the course of the months and the year, um, my wife was diagnosed with postnatal anxiety and I was eventually diagnosed with PTSD. And um, yeah, look, I guess looking back, it's, it's that kind of, uh, you know, thinking, or, or I guess lack of support, really, lack of acknowledgement of father's experiences when they go through a real kind of traumatic experience and then kind of just go back into real life, back into work, back into being a new dad with all the pressures that brings anyway and all the sleep deprivation and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. So, so I think that that experience is what has led me to do the work I do now, which is running my platform for dads called music football fatherhood. You know, we have a podcast, we, we do regular monthly events. We have a really popular blog and I've also written a book. We have 20 other dads called dad. And that, that, you know, the book really is about telling those stories, my story, but also 19 other stories from fathers who are kind of really openly and honestly talking about their their experiences as dads. So yeah, and I also do work around, you know, going to do talks with organizations about how they can support working dads and why they should support working dads. And we talk about mental health and masculinity and male allyship and all that sort of stuff. And I think that's really powerful and something that's showed up a lot for other guests I've had on the podcast where going through hardship has led them to connect with a deeper purpose, finding meaning, finding something that they want to do, a passion project that you've turned this excruciating experience into something that you can contribute to to others and supporting others' mental health and supporting other fathers coming into, you know, becoming a dad. And I want to obviously ask more about the book and the stories that are in the book in a minute. But I think the way you talk about it now, Elliot, we, we mentioned beforehand that, you know, you, you, you've told the story so many times that you're kind of comfortable going to vulnerable places. I mean, you've been interviewed by the BBC, you know, been in, in big publications. How was this to talk about this, to tell the story when you were going through it? I mean, when you were kind of coming back to work and people were asking you about your baby, the birth, what was that like? I actually haven't really spoken. It, it took me three years to speak publicly. Yeah. not even publicly sorry outside of <laughs> I shouldn't say publicly outside of the conversation between me and my wife it took me f- three years to even really talk to anyone else in any depth really so my daughter was born in October 2015 and um it was I think about 18 months after that that I was interviewed by someone that we both know Anna Cisse mm. who founded Motherdom and uh, she wanted to talk to me about my platform and and, and uh, self-care for dads, I think it was. And it wasn't actually anything to do with my experience of PTSD or anything like that. But we were speaking and she was asking me about my daughter and the birth. And literally, I couldn't even really get through the story. And that's the first time I guess someone had kind of asked me. And I couldn't couldn't get through the story because up until then, I, I wouldn't talk about it really with anyone apart from my wife because we've both been through the same thing. You know, work colleagues, even my parents, friends, they knew what was happening at the time. But afterwards, I didn't really speak about it with them. It was kind of, you know, she's okay now, kind of get on with it. Um, so I think that definitely contributed 
the fact that you know for whatever reason I didn't feel like I could talk to to anyone I think that's probably a mixture of you know me feeling like people wouldn't understand like I might be judged for talking about how, how I was feeling um people not actually asking really <laughs> you know people not asking the questions <laughs> some mm. people didn't know fair enough they didn't know I didn't tell them but I think others that maybe knew a little bit you know didn't really ask so I think all the, all those combination of things just just led to me not really expressing myself to anyone outside of my my wife and we, I guess we're very lucky where we you know very great relationships so we can talk about everything and we spent lots of time <laughs> in those first months just talking about uh, I think that's one of the things we only spoke about you know we'd stay up we'd, we'd be up in in bed just like staring at the wall just thinking what the hell happened do you know what I mean just trying to come to terms with what happened trying to accept it and that lasted a long time actually so so yeah it was it was it wasn't until that conversation with Anna um she recommended I talk to one of her specialists which I did and we had a couple of conversations it's weird though because I, I guess at that point I was kind of coming out of the symptoms of PTSD I was feeling a bit better but when I was in a thick, thick of it you know I, I I probably couldn't have had a conversation like this at all really mm. Well, it's something that I often sort of hear that people feel that it's really difficult to communicate about these things when you're in the in the thick of it. You know, it's like it's easier to talk from a scar than it is to talk from an open wound. And it's hard to tell your story when you're living it. So I think you're right that there's the combination there of ways that, that dads were failed and the way that you were failed in that journey, that you won't ask the questions. So obviously, the way that we process trauma by avoiding to talk about it was allowed to continue. And when you weren't talking about it, your brain was also not processing it. So no wonder that that lingered for years to come. So I wonder, you also said sort of, you know, worry about judgment and, you know, need to just get on with it. In the BBC article that I read, which I'm going to link in the show notes as well, so people can read the full story. You were also kind of describing how you were told at one point, just kind of pull yourself together to be there for your family. How do you think that that message helped you in some ways and was harmful for you in some ways was there anything there about pressure for you to cope as a dad as a, as a man to kind of pull yourself together yeah I mean I think that particular that, yeah that 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 nurse at that time I think she kind of said what probably needs to be said and she was right and I thank her for that to be honest I think it was in that particular moment you know it was very important that I was there for my family I don't think it's necessary to do with with gender or being a dad it was literally just like you are the responsible person you are the parent you are the caregiver that is here and you know you literally need to be you need to be on point you need to be here for your child you know so I think that I don't think that particular instance was a was a kind of thing around oh you're a man I think it was like look you're you're this is a baby she needs you <laughs> um but I think I don't, I don't think there's a particular person or moment where I can say this, you know, that that happened because I am a man. I think it's just in general, in general, the way the structures are set up in terms of, you know, paternity leave and the lack of in many organizations, the way that dads don't really have so many community groups. And part of that is our fault. You know, we need to get better at setting them up but there isn't that much like informal support. There wasn't at least, there's more now, but you know, in 2015, 16, there wasn't that much informal support where you can go and just meet other dads and just have a chat. You know, that wasn't necessarily a thing back then. 
um, you know, there's a lack of screening for the NHS. Now it's got better. Now some trusts will screen high-risk dads, you know, high-risk dads that have either had previous mental health issues, his wife, his partners are suffering from postnatal depression or have witnessed a traumatic birth. You know, if you are in some trust and you're a new dad, you will get a conversation and assessment. But that wasn't available in 2015. And I think there's the societal pressures of, like, the masculine traditions of, you know, we don't complain, we don't go through those issues, we kind of, and if we do, we just kind of get on with it. So I think it was all those things that played a part in meaning that I didn't necessarily, I didn't even talk to my employer. You know, there was days I was going to work where literally couldn't even say hello to my team. I'd go up the lift, see them, mumble some words and just go and sit down because I, I, I was feeling so much not myself. I couldn't really communicate properly. I couldn't say hello. I was, I was in a meeting once and um, I was working for a DG and I had something quite important to say. It was a senior management team meeting with him and all his directors. And I was like his business manager. And I had some quite important information to give them that actually had a, quite a big um, impact on their, on their week's work. And I remember going around the table and I was getting anxious when it was coming around to me. And normally I'm quite a confident, extroverted person, but it came around to me and I literally could not talk. And I just mumbled some words like, oh, not, nothing, nothing for me. Knowing in my mind that I have some really important information I need to give them. And yeah, this this is this is this is a bad thing if I don't say it. But I just literally couldn't bring myself to say it. And and yeah, it, it was things like that where I still didn't feel like I could kind of say, hey, like you know, this is what's been going on. It was like you know, just kind of just kind of get on with it and and see it through, really. So yeah, I think you know we need to do more to change that, really, don't we? So it's a really tricky balance there because it sounds like what you needed in the moment when you were in utter crisis. What that nurse did to help you kind of mobilize to step up to be a caregiver was helpful. But then it's also if that carries on, if we keep thinking, I just need to get on with it. I, I need to be the dad. I need to be the caregiver. Actually, if that is prolonged where we don't get a chance to debrief, don't get a chance to talk about it, that's where it can be more dangerous. So I, I really want to kind of be clear that I'm not implying that the nurse did any harm to you in any way. It's just I think that it fits with the toxic messaging around masculinity that, that you know men should just kind of stiff up a lip and, and get on with it. And I think you're quite passionate about talking about masculinity. So when you talk in your community groups, you know, on your podcast, what, what kind of things do you want listeners to know if there are any new dads or dads who've been through hard journeys? What would you want them to know about masculinity? I think with masculinity, the, the whole idea essentially that just because you are a particular gender, you have to think and feel and act a certain way. And I think true, true liberation and true freedom um, comes with not being limited by what other people think you should be. And it's, it's quite hard because you know, those ideas are quite ingrained in terms of sometimes we don't even realize it ourselves. Like we don't even realize why we make certain decisions a lot of the time. You know, a lot of it is to do with our upbringing, our cultural background, our social circle, our workplace, um, you know, our levels of self-esteem and self-confidence. Like a lot of factors go into make, you know, why we make these small decisions every day. And I think when we're looking at masculinity and think and thinking about, you know, asking that question about how do we really like think about who, who we are and what we want and what kind of life we want. And what kind of life do we really, really want? Not just what we think our parents are going to be proud of or our friends are going to think is a good idea or our children's parents are going to respect us for 
or our managers, you know, what do I really want? What do I, how do I want to spend my time? How do I don't want to be with people. You know, how how open do I want to be about life's difficulties? What do I how, how do I want to spend my working days? What kind of job do I want to do? How involved do I want to be with my children? Do I want to be a stay-at-home dad? Do I want to work part-time? Do I actually want to leave that job to do something that's more soft skills based? Or actually, do I want to do something that is traditionally masculine? And do I want to work full-time? That's fine too. But I think it's about having that conversation with ourselves about who we really are. And I think a lot of a lot of us men and women are are kind of put into boxes from a young age in subtle ways, but we're encouraged to do certain things. And that kind of influences a lot of our decisions and that and and and, and behaviors when we get older. You know, when when boys are young, that old saying, boys don't cry, you know, you see it in the park, a boy falls over, the mum and dad, oh get up, it's okay, you're a big boy. Now, they're encouraged not re- to not really express when they're hurt. And don't get me wrong, sometimes that's that's a good thing. <laughs> sometimes that's a good trait. Like we need life is hard. Sometimes we do need to just kind of, you know, be able to have resilience in, in those tough times, like like, you know, that moment with that doctor. Um, so there's I'm not saying that's that's completely wrong in any way. I think it's just being able to have that full set of emotions and us not feeling like because we are raising a boy or because we're raising a girl they need to behave in a certain way I think that's really important so um, I think it's about yeah when it comes to parenting for new dads um, thinking about you know before your baby's born maybe even before your before you start trying for a baby if it's planned you know thinking about what kind of dad you want to be like and what, what kind of relationship do you want with your child um, how often do you want to see them do you want to be involved in the pickups and the drop-offs do you want that real, real close relationship or actually do you want to be more of a provider financially and, and you prioritize that? You know, there's no right or wrong. It's more just about having that conversation and really having time and space to really think about what you want to do, not based on what you think is the right thing to do based on others' opinions. So I think it's quite hard. You know, it sounds in some way quite simple. But it's hard to actually have that conversation with ourselves. You know, even me recently, like in my house now, um, I left my job. So I do this full time. I do my talks. I run my community. And, you know, at the moment, my my wife is the main breadwinner. She's the one with a secure job. She works probably more than I do at the moment. I'm, you know, doing, I have, I've done, I was doing the drop-offs and pickups before, but I'm kind of doing a bit more in a, in a childcare space now. And... You know, if five, t- ten years ago, would I have thought that it's something that I would be doing? I don't know. But now I'm. It's great for me. It's amazing. And if I, if I had, if I had thought that I had to go down a certain route, I wouldn't. I don't think I'd be so happy because now I'm very comfortable with my life. I'm very happy with my life. What flexibility I get. Have a great relationship with my daughter. I get to do what I love. And not everyone understands it. You know, some people think I'm crazy. Some people don't get it. Some people. I might give my book to some other dads and that they don't talk to me <laughs> again afterwards because I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I wasn't expecting that. But that's cool. You know, I don't really care. I'm happy. I think we should encourage more people, not just men, but more people to just be themselves really and not not care so much what, what others think. Well, it takes a lot of strength and courage there to kind of stand tall in yourself there to think these are my values. This is my version of what a happy, you know, happy, successful, meaningful 
rewarding life looks like. And not everyone's going to resonate. And that's, that's okay. I think you've made it very clear that it's not about finding the right way of living. It's finding what's true to you and then following that. And I guess expectation and pressure from societal norms, you know, gender norms can be really hard to shake, especially if we get then, you know, outright judgment or criticism from others. You know, why are you doing that? Why have you quit your job? There's a lot of that. I mean, have you received outright criticism for your, your kind of career choices? Not necessarily for my career choice, not criticism. You know, say, for example, with the article, the BBC article, there was a lot of people saying, oh, well done, it's great that you're speaking so openly. But there was, I don't know how the ratio, but there was a lot of people being like, what is this guy talking about? Why is he complaining? You know, some people were like, oh, PTSD, try and be an army veteran. Like, you know, there was that kind of thing as well. So you're never quite sure when I meet someone. I'm never quite sure when I tell them what I do, what they think of it. And no one, I don't think anyone said to me outright, you know, I don't think they would be that rude. And the people, British people generally aren't that rude to your face anyway. So I'd be very surprised if someone said to me up front, like, I wouldn't have it anyway. Do you know what I mean? I'd give it back to them. So they probably know not to do that. But yeah, I would be very surprised if someone did that to my face. But you can get a sense and you know that not everyone is comfortable with this. So it still takes, you know, I guess a bit of bravery to be like, this is what I want to do. And yeah, people do it in different parts of their lives as well. You know, people who just live differently, whether, whether that's that they are vegan or that they are homosexual or, you know, whatever it is that is outside of, I don't know if vegan is probably societal norm now, but maybe veganism 10 years ago, it wasn't. Mm. Um, and being, you know, being comfortable living differently. And I think when we're talking about masculinity, it's that it's about being comfortable living differently to the traditional norms. And sometimes the, press, the pressure comes not even just from outsiders. It can come from your family. It can come from your, your parents, you know, especially when we're looking at different cultures, maybe some African cultures, Asian cultures who have kind of strong work ethic, strong traditional views about what a man does in terms of profession. You know, certain things that they should study at university, certain job titles that gain respect. So, to be in that culture and step out and say, actually, I'm doing something different. It does take some bravery. It really does. Absolutely. And it's one of the things that you are also keen to capture is the diversity of fatherhood. You're talking about stories in your book of black fatherhood. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that and why that's important to you? Yes. I've got history and diversity inclusion. My last job was as the head of DNI at the Treasury. And I'm a black man, obviously, <laughs> myself. <laughs> so I've got lived experience of that particular element of diversity. But yeah, for me, it was really important in, in the book to represent as many dads as possible you know life is not it's not black and white <laughs> um and my my opinion and my experience is my experience but you know it's so good that we can learn from others I've met you know in, in putting this book together I've met so many different men from all across the UK different backgrounds in terms of ethnicity different ages different sexualities different working patterns different setups in their home life and I think that that adds for me, you know, that adds such a richness. I have learned lots. The reader will learn lots too. I think it's just about, you know, for society as a whole, showing them that involved active dads come in different shapes and sizes and forms, you know, and 
that is really important if you're, if you're trying to represent fatherhood you can't just come at it from one perspective you have to do your best to have a whole breadth of different people who will all who will bring their own experiences and their own views and perspectives um so yeah we've got michael who's a gay dad and he talks about surrogacy we've got rp faulkner who's a black dad grew up in a, a rough council state and church road which is in northwest london he didn't have a dad when he was growing up he's now a successful man married with two kids um we've got peter who's a university lecturer he's originally polish now lives in manchester well, he is polish but he loves him lives in manchester and he's i think he's in his early 50s and you know he talks about having children that are, that are older and and just kind of seeing them through the different stages of their lives. So, you know, that's just three examples, but a real breadth of different experiences. And it's, it's really great. You know, I love, I love the fact that we've got different people involved. So it's really important to res- represent such a collective of stories. And how, how did you find the contributors for the book? Yeah, so some of them I knew before. So obviously, you know, through Music Football Fatherhood, we've got a, a blog and we have a contributing team. So we've got quite a wide community. So some of the, I'll say about half of the, contributors for the book were just people that were in our core team anyway our team of writers we've got 20 writers so that was pretty simple and and the initial idea it was literally me looking at our team and be like we have amazing stories we have you know Alec is in our team Alec's a widower his wife died during childbirth we have Andy who had you know his partner had three miscarriages um we've got Arion who's a black guy who who's um wife is Indian and they have a mixed race child and he talks about he talks about that you know we have these incredible stories in our team anyway and I was like we need to tell these stories and then it was about you know okay what other what other kind of aspects of fatherhood do we need yeah we need we need someone we need a gay dad you know I need to find my found Michael um through Instagram (laughs) found Will just randomly we're on on a call about it was through the NHS um it was about well-being and men and we happened to just be on the same ms team's call and he was talking about being bullied as a dad and i don't know we just clicked and now you know we're good friends now and he's contributed to the book and it's been amazing so so some of yeah some of it was just randomly i think when the book has all been very natural there's all been the vibe like I, I kind of have a plan for my life but i very much go on vibes <laughs> so who, who who feels right who feels like they they they're ready to be honest and vulnerable you know who who's in it for the right reasons and who has a story to tell ultimately who has an interesting story that the world needs to hear I think that's the key element there that you know the stories that the world needs to hear because it's making an impact and you have made such an impact with the work that you do with the you know with your passion project has been running for years obviously the book coming out in June this year has made quite a splash with you know the BBC article I mentioned, for instance, but you've been doing this for years. This is not a new thing for you. So I wonder if you also want to mention how that led to you receiving the um, the Changemaker of the Year Award. Yeah, I forget about that now. <laughs> I actually forgot about it. Um, yeah, so that was, that was, I was on a panel. I was on a panel, must have been early 2019. And I was talking about you know what I do and talking about being you know working dads and all that sort of stuff and I remember that was through a company called DNI Leaders and it was in um, London Bridge and afterwards I got a message on LinkedIn by someone that was also on the panel um, and she was saying oh that you know, I want to nominate you for this award and I'm kind of generally I'm kind of against DNI awards to be honest I've kind of I don't know sometimes I feel like they're kind of 
they encourage the wrong behaviors. I see a lot of companies just not doing the work, but just applying for awards and saying, look, we've won this award because we did this tiny initiative last year. So when I first got the message, I was like, oh, I don't, I don't want to be nominated for an award. And then I saw it was the United Nations. And I was like, oh, maybe, maybe this one I'll, I'll, I'll say yes to. So yeah, I had a call with, with the lady Carol and um, she said she's going to put me forward for it. And I was like, okay, cool. That was, that was exciting. And then, yeah, found out I was shortlisted and it was, was amazing. Went to this, this uh, Albright, it's called the Albright. Um, it's a, I'm sure your listeners will know it. It's a company that is, empowers women and runs courses and it's a space for women in Mayfair. And it was held there and it was the, the UN Women UK He For She Awards. And um, I had to, I remember <laughs> before, before, before going to the ceremony, I had to go through an interview actually and uh, they said to me oh just come along with a five minute interview and you'll meet a couple of the trustees and the director and whatnot of UN Women UK so I went, I went to this it was this, in this law firm somewhere in banks this posh place and I went up to that top floor and I was like wow this is this is cool and I walked into the room and there was about eight nine people there all just sitting down <laughs> I remember going in there feeling nervous and I was like why am I nervous like you know I'm not going for a job interview but I prepared a little presentation. I had some PowerPoint slides. I gave them my slides. I talked through, you know, what I do and the impact I've I've made and why I do what I do and ultimately how how I engage men in conversations around parenting and gender equality. And they loved it and um yeah, ended up winning the award. So that was all kind of big moment for me. There's been a few big moments, I guess, over the years, but that was a massive moment, you know, to be recognized by such a big institution it's a fantastic way of kind of getting some recognition of the efforts you're making that that there is a ripple effect of what you're doing starting you know starting your communities starting the discussion uh, i think it's really powerful to see that this is what can happen when we step into our purpose that this is something you want to give back to the world and it's not been an easy ride i'm sure so how how do you switch off in between all of these difficult things that you're doing i've learned now so now i'm ready I'm quite good at it now, to be honest. But it's been it's been a journey. Um, so I remember doing a test a few years ago, and it came out that I was a mild, a mild workaholic. And my wife laughed because she was like, "You're not a mild workaholic. <laughs> you're, a work, you're a workaholic." <laughs> um, but it's been, do you know, there was what there was one incident I think that led to it. So basically, when I when I was talking about the UNO Award, there was when I, when I got the phone call that I'd been shortlisted and the invitation to go to the award show. I was at my sister's house and I was downstairs and I got the phone call or the email and I was like over the moon. I was like, wow, this is amazing. You know, it was, it was just, yeah, really, I was just like over the moon. But in the, in the months leading up to that, I'd been feeling quite dizzy and I wasn't quite sure what it was. So I was going to the doctors, getting tests and they, they weren't sure why. And it was just a weird feeling where I was kind of walking and I would feel like I was going to fall over such a weird feeling I was feeling really dizzy so I'd been to the doctors and I did tests on my heart and that same day I found out that I'd got shortlisted the doctor called me and said they think they think I may have something called left ventricular hypertrophy which is where the left part of your heart kind of gets bigger because it's working too hard so they were like you got to go to uh, um, see a specialist for tests and whatnot and that's the same day so in the morning, I'm like over the moon and then, not even the morning, I think like the after, early afternoon, I'm over the moon and later afternoon, I'm like, oh my gosh, like what, you know, I've got a problem with my heart, like I'm a young guy, like 
all these things going through your mind. So went to get tests and they actually found that it was fine. <laughs> I didn't have what the doctor thought I had. But for me, that was a big wake-up call. It's a massive wake-up call to be like, look, it doesn't matter really what you do, what you achieve. You know, if you don't look after yourself and don't find time for rest and exercise and just general self-care and eating well and sleeping, like it means nothing. You know, and that was a massive wake-up call. From then, it didn't happen straight away, but from then I've kind of gradually been getting better and and now I'm in a nice position now where I left my corporate job, I do this full-time, I have complete flexibility, I'm in a very blessed position where people will pay me to go and talk or they'll pay through MFF for us to sponsor a brand or do some sponsored work or something. So I kind of have a very you know nice balance now where I can spend an afternoon just chilling out if I'm you know not feeling it. Obviously, I work very hard at the same time, but I, I don't have those demands. I have to be at a certain place at a certain time, you know, that I haven't dictated. So, so yeah, now it's really important for me now. You know, now I make sure that I watch Love Island <laughs> or <laughs> I read a book or do some exercise, scroll mindlessly on Twitter, you know, anything, watch a movie, you know, just stuff that I can just reveal, just, just, just zone out. Been on a holiday. I've been in been on in Ibiza for two weeks which was amazing and I'm still mentally on holiday I think so uh, it took me a bit of a while to get back into the groove so yeah I think now I'm definitely a lot better of it now it's still a journey though I think you know most people that have that are doing something and building something you have to have an element of assistance which does make switching off difficult but it's necessary you know life is a marathon it's not about winning and achieving loads today you want to be here in 10 years doing the same thing and that means you have to look after yourself absolutely so if you're going to sustainably reach your points of of achievement that, that you want to do things that you are passionate about you know that self-care that sort of pacing yourself creating space for downtime is even more important because otherwise you know there could be another wake-up call it could all be taken away in a heartbeat um you know no pun intended because you had a heart, heart <laughs> potential heart condition I guess there's something I hear a lot that sort of that when the body says no, when the body kind of gives you a signal that, oh, hang on, you need to you need to slow down a bit and pace yourself. And your story is, is very, very uh, common that I hear that people have had a kind of a, an alarm clock go off like, oh, actually, hang on a minute, I need to change my life somewhat. And it, yeah, it doesn't happen overnight. It's simply mm-hmm. because we've had a wake up call, we then change our habits in a heartbeat, of course. It sounds like you're still consciously planning things in and, and kind of adjusting your life, you know, calibrating your life to fit so that you can do the work that's so important to you, but without burning out in the process. So it's really, I think it's really empowering for people listening that, you know, we can be really passionate about something. We can reach major achievements. I mean, you know, things that you're proud of, like your award, but not collapsing in a heap because we're pushing ourselves too hard. So Bringing things to a close for the final kind of part of the pause purpose play. Tell us, Elliot, what do you do to be playful? As we play for, spend time with my daughter. <laughs> I think <laughs> she's five. And uh, yeah, I think anyone with a five year old knows that they are very playful beings. <laughs> and there's lots of um, trips to the park. There's lots of, you know, we're very, very, we try to be very active and take her out because she's got loads of energy. So we have to. So there's lots of walks and you take the dog to to the field. Um, so yeah, I think spending time with my daughter is is I guess for for parents like it's exercise on tap 
I guess. I think it's about but doing that in a present way, which you know, I don't think I'm always great at being present in the moment and completely being there. I've definitely got a lot better at it and recently, you know, not having my corporate job has helped me do that a lot more. But yes, I think I'll think that. I think what else do I do? I like to go to the cinema when I can. Um, I listen to a lot of music. I love music. I watch a lot of football. So, you know, that for me is like escapism. But um, yeah, me and my wife have a great, you know, we're we're um, obviously married, but we like best friends. We have a laugh. We have a good laugh. So we, we're always laughing and joking around. Um, we like to go out as well when we can. My, my daughter's actually at my parents today. I should say staying over at her cousin's house tonight. She's very excited about that. So we're going to go out into town and grab a drink go to a bar which will be great as unexpected because we didn't know it's gonna happen until yesterday when my sister said does anyone come over i was like yeah of course of course nice. you want to come over <laughs> exactly nice. so yeah it's a bit of freedom to also you know it's like you're describing kind of an image of you and your wife you've gone through so much hardship and it's strengthened your relationship that you know one of the playful things in life is having a bit of banter with your best friend you know the, mm. the person you married is also your the close companions. So it's really nice to hear how that's kind of a way for you to let, let off some steam with, with your child, with your wife, but also doing things that you're passionate about. So no wonder that's called music, football and fatherhood. Because <laughs> yeah. that's kind of your interest there, isn't it? So thank <laughs> yeah. you so much for sharing all of that with us, Elliot. I could talk to you for ages, but I'm aware of time that you actually, being a very important person, have another meeting. So I want to just yeah. ask you for a final takeaway to give the listeners. Um, what kind of pressure would you like to take off them or what permission would you give them? I think it's what I, kind of what, touching on what I was saying earlier, you know, permission to be yourself. I think life has its ups and downs. I think, I think we as humans, the reality is that we're going to have, you know, real lows. I think that's just part of the human experience. I think as we get older, we realize that and we can't escape that. But at the same time, I think we have the ability to, to create greatness. I think we all have greatness within, within us. Some of the experiences I've had in the last five years, literally, I like if you had told me, I would have thought you were crazy. You know, some of the things that has happened to me positively are just out of this world. You know, mm. genuinely, I couldn't, you couldn't make it up. And, you know, something interesting you said earlier, like when, you, when, you learn, when you're leaning to your purpose, mm. you know, greatness can happen. It takes a lot of work and persistence and maybe years and trial and error. But when you're doing, when you find your purpose and you really do that and you go full steam on that, you won't know like the levels of what you can do and the lives you can change and, and the, the life you can design for yourself and others. So, you know, my one piece of advice would be like, you know, just take some time think about what you really want to do with your yourself professionally, what kind of parent and dad you want to be and have that vision, find ways of working towards it and then, work towards it do the work and you'll 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 get some some benefits um and that's i think how you how we be happy you know i did a talk for the harvard business school alumni a few years ago it was me and a few other people who kind of did similar things charities or you know social enterprise work and at first i was like why do they want to hear from us <laughs> but they're very successful doctors and lawyers and you know they supposedly got it all but they were looking for purpose mm-hmm. And that moment was really, really important for me because I was like, oh, you know, like when you've got all the money and you've got all the on paper success, the car, the house, like that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be fulfilled and and you, you would have found what 
you know, find purpose. You need purpose. You need to feel like that Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, the um, at the top, self-actualization. Mm-hmm. And I think the more we can do to to think about that, what what does that mean for me, and try to work towards that, you know, I think we'll we'll be happier people for it. Absolutely. I, cu- I couldn't agree more. And obviously, this is why I talk a lot about purpose on the podcast. So thank you so much for sharing that wisdom and for giving our, your time today. So thank you for being a wonderful guest on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been very, very cathartic, actually, very relaxing. So yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Thank you for listening to this episode about how to support fathers' mental health. It's so easy to forget how fathers matter too. In this day and age of talking more about motherhood, we also need to keep talking about fatherhood. If the fathers of our children aren't supported, what will happen to the role modelling they will be doing to our children? When fathers are well, their relationship with their children will flourish. And when their relationship with their children will flourish, we will raise children who are nourished and more confident in themselves. Especially fathers raising boys. Needing to think about showing emotions, talking about our feelings, talking about what we've gone through. And Elliot is a really good example of how we can do that. That we don't have to fit this mould of masculinity. That we can build an image of fathers that can be precisely what you want it to be. So if you are a dad listening to this, remember that you can think about what fatherhood means to you. And what you want to be like as a dad. Thinking about the values you hold for yourself. So this episode is dedicated to my husband as this is released on his birthday and he is the father of my two children and I love him very dearly. So until I speak to you next time, do take care of yourselves. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. I know it's not easy when you feel busy and overwhelmed to find time for another thing to do. If this is you, if you feel overwhelmed or that you are close to your breaking point, then I've got a downloadable checklist for you that's going to help. This checklist is called Calm the Overwhelm. The first section has signs and symptoms of you being overwhelmed mentally or physically, showing you that you might be close to breaking point or burning out. The second part is actionable, easy things you can do to try to slow down and give yourself a break. And the third part is a checklist of all the things that might show up when you're asking yourself to take a break. Perhaps your inner critical voice will have an opinion about why you're not allowed to give yourself the permission to pause. To download this free resource, go to www.thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm. So that's the thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm. This episode of the Pause Purpose Play podcast was presented by me, Michaela Thomas. And you can find me on thethomasconnection.co.uk. And because great work rests on having a great team, this episode was kindly edited by Emily Crosby Media. <laughs>